the the online uh theory that you often get especially as mmtiers are basically saying that the government's not in charge the central banks is in charge and even to the extent of the commercial banks are in charge so the government has to ask government really has to borrow money from the banks in order to spend the debt is real like personal real and you know obviously it's a big deal and that undermines everything about mmt so how do you respond to that person like how do you guide them to the correct understanding that is there any instance in history where the central bank did not do what parliament or Congress told it to do when it really came down to it? Okay. Um, well, I think um, I actually don't get that question very much because it seems, I, I, I suppose, I suppose you guys get it a bit or you wouldn't be asking me. But, oh, I but, do. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, I would basically say, did Congress write the Federal Reserve Act to bring the Federal Reserve into existence, or did the Federal Reserve write the Congress Act to bring the Congress into existence? <laughs> Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about real-world economics, including modern money theory, and how life changes when you discover it. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today I talk with Scott Fallweiler on his 2008 paper, Modern Central Bank Operations, The General Principles. Today's part one of a three-part conversation. Today we discuss some generic but related topics and then principles one and two. Next time in part two, we cover principles three to six, and then in part three, principles seven to 10. My full and detailed question and summary list can be found in the show notes. Also, be sure to check out the list of audio chapters to find precisely where each principle and otherwise can be found. Today's principles one and two. Principle one is that reserves can only be used for two purposes, settling payments between banks and meeting reserve requirements. There's actually a third purpose, which is that it's the only thing that can ultimately settle tax obligations to the state. Knowing these are its only possible uses, When you hear, for example, that more reserves somehow increase a bank's liquidity and that this in turn encourages banks to lend more to their customers, which then in turn increases economic activity in general, you know they're wrong. The same is true with the reverse, that less reserves somehow discourages lending and reduces economic activity. Principle two says that because the central bank is the only entity capable of creating and deleting reserves, It has a fundamental legal obligation to promote the smooth functioning of the national payment system. Without a functioning payment system, society would, without exaggeration, break down. If a bank can't settle its payments with another bank, then everyone expecting a payment won't receive it, and everyone expecting payment from them also won't receive it, and on and on. Trillions of dollars go through the Federal Reserve System every day. In the United States, more goes through this system each week than an entire year's worth of GDP. Not to mention, the U.S. payment system is central to most of the payments for the entire world. And so the U.S. payment system breaking down would have global implications. As a brief side note, the latter point is leveraged by the United States to surveil and manipulate most nations around the globe. One example is how when Iraq threatened to eject all U.S. troops, the U.S. responded by threatening to forbid Iraq from using its payment system, thereby potentially disconnecting it from the entire world. This is the big story that lurks behind the so-called petrodollar. There's a fascinating video on this by the Wall Street Journal, which you'll find linked in the show notes. 
And now on to my conversation with Scott Fulweiler. Enjoy. Oh, I didn't even think of bringing the actual paper itself. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> I can send it to you if you want. No, I got it, actually. Oh, I'm sure you I, have one, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's intensely marked up, but um, uh, how's your weekend going? Oh, well, since we're recording, I probably shouldn't say the truth since my wife's out of town. <laughs> no, it's good. Um, so how are you doing? I'm good. I'm actually curious. Just, I'm married to a second grade teacher. I'm, oh, okay. And so I see her like working all the time outside of work. Huh. And I'm curious, you know, mm-hmm. as a professor, like how much time on your weekends do you actually spend, oh, you know, doing well, that kind of stuff? Well, doing work, you mean? Yeah, work for school, oh. like, you know, lesson plans or, or oh, grading yeah. or whatever. All the time. <laughs> really? Yeah, okay. it's not a, yeah, I mean, I would say, I don't know if it's the same as, as, uh, as a K through 12, because, you know, I just marvel at how they are so organized and get so much done. I don't even know what I would do if I had to teach that many. <laughs> I you said that. <laughs> I don't even know what I'd do if I had that many classes and that many students. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's probably not the greatest job for people who aren't that organized. <laughs> so mm-hmm. like myself, but, um, uh-huh. <laughs> I have flashes. I have flashes of being organized. Okay. Um, I know how to do it. It just, but, um, you know, I mean, yeah, it's just, it's just really a bit haphazard. I mean, you know, I start doing my own work noon or something like that. So then I end up working nights and weekends quite frequently. So. Okay. Uh, uh forgive me. My, my son's interrupting me. Just give me one. Oh, no worries. No worries. Mm. All right, one last try here. I'm sorry, you're just gonna have to deal with it for a few hours. Sorry, <laughs> he got new sneakers and they're impossible to untie. Oh, that was so fun. All right, all right, love you lots. Get out of here. Bye. <laughs> how old are you? Is that uh, how old are your kids? Thirteen and sixteen. Oh, okay. Um, so the uh, the older one just loves being by himself, like. Uh-huh. He would, you know, he's like talented at everything, but all he uh-huh. wants to do is play video games. So, but he gets uh-huh. good grades. He gets good grades. He play, does his chores. So, you know, we can't like, you know, whatever, but right. Um, the other one's 13 and, uh-huh. um, you know, but like, I, I actually just like very briefly, I just, I, I love our relationship. It's like pre- with my younger one, it's like pretend adversarial. So I'll, t- uh-huh. I'll tell my, I'll tell my favorite quick story about him, which uh-huh. is my wife and him get home, you know, from whatever they're doing. And, uh, and my wife can like, Oh, hello. I kiss my hug, my wife. And then I see him and I was like, Oh, I didn't realize you were here. And <laughs> so he just walks over to, he walks over to the dining room table and pretends to pick it up and throw it at me. And that's, that's like our relationship. And, and so he had uh, a worksheet at the beginning of the school year, like, you know, tell you, tell, tell me about yourself. And he showed it to me and under hobbies was throw furniture at my daddy. So, <laughs> that's pretty clever awesome. <laughs> so i was like maybe you want to pretend there but so anyway um <laughs> that's very good uh, all right well i mean you know thank you for already being generous with your time it's it's oh, been no uh, you know really interesting and uh um uh, let's do it you let's ready see. so sure yeah well, um I, I think we met at the what year was that? It's all, what, 2018 up in New York? I was hoping you'd forget that. <laughs> oh, is that right? Oh, no worries. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I won't forget that. What happened is, is I, you know, I, I uh, bit off more than I can chew by choice. And, and you at oh, the bar okay. were telling me what, what the national debt is. And I, 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 you know, I didn't understand what the national debt, it wasn't just all the money in the economy. It was, you know, oh, just the bonds. Oh, you're a good company, though. Yeah. You're a good company. Yeah. So, um, so which, which makes it all the more amazing how, how, how much you know now I see you, I see you every now and then online helping other people out. And um, yeah, I mean, it's humbling when somebody wants, wants to dive into your work that much. So thank um, you. That's great. I'm curious where you see it because I'm glad you're, I'm sure you're glad you're off Twitter 
because it's a hell of a platform, but you know, you are missed there, but I don't see you. I don't see you online. So I'm curious, where do you see that happening? Yeah, I had, um, uh, a couple of rough years there and, um, and kind of in the middle of that, I just kind of decided to get rid of my online presence. Um, couldn't do everything at once. And, and, you know, it does get really kind of heavy. The, the, um, there's a lot of bad energy thrown every single direction <laughs> in, uh, uh, you know, in those, in those little dis- debates we get into and such. And mm-hmm. you have to be able to keep your cool. And, and I have a mixed record on that. So it's better for me to just, to just kind of keep it at arm's length. Well, I mean, you guys challenge power, so you're of course going to get <laughs> very heavy, especially with all the anonymous, uh, the the ability yes. to be anonymous, and yes. especially on Twitter, like creating yeah. bots and stuff like that. So, right, absolutely. All right, well, you're definitely missed there, but it, it is oh, easily the most addicting platform. Easily, the oh, most. Yeah. It is difficult to get off of Twitter yeah. at, more than yeah. any other. So, yeah. um, sometimes it makes me hope Elon buys it, so it's easier. <laughs> to get, to get off of it, so. Yeah, I'm sure it will improve. Um, uh, <laughs> or you can um, leave easier. <laughs> right. Yeah, make it easier to finally make the decision. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> um, uh, oh, okay. I mean, we got a lot to talk about, so you know, hopefully sure. we can squeeze this in. So, so why don't we? Why don't we get into this? Um, mm-hmm. I've I've decided to approach this not with. Most interviews are asking questions. This interview, uh-huh. I've decided to, instead of doing that, I'm largely going to be basically summarizing each of the 10 points in your paper. So the okay. paper the paper is called, you tell me, you have it in front of oh, you. Oh, it's Modern Central Bank Operations, the General Principles. Okay. So 2008 paper and 10 principles yes. of how, you know, what central banking is about. So right. mm-hmm. I'm going to summarize each of those 10 principles. Sure. Um, and maybe use an excuse to, to ask a question, but, and mm-hmm. then you'll correct and, and elaborate as necessary. So mm-hmm. um, bef- before getting into the specific principles, I'd like to ask a few moderately unrelated questions. Sure. Um, so, okay. All right. So first is, is the, the online uh, theory that you often get, especially as MMTers are basically saying that the government's not in charge the central banks is in charge and even to the extent of the commercial banks are in charge. So the government has to ask, government really has to borrow money from the banks in order to spend. The debt is real, like personal real. And, you know, obviously it's a big deal and that undermines everything about NMT. So, you know, we're going to get into the, the lots of very specific details, but in general, mm-hmm. how, assuming that this person is, you know, really wants to know better, how do you respond to that person? Like, how do you guide them okay. to the correct understanding that, that number one, without this centralized system, at least in our current setup, we can't have a stable society. And number two, is there any instance in history where the central bank did not do what parliament or Congress told it to do when it really came down to it? Okay. Um, well, I think, um, <laughs> I actually don't get that question very much because it seems, uh, I, I suppose, I suppose you guys get it a bit or you wouldn't be asking me. But, oh, <laughs> but, I do. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, I would basically say, did Congress write the Federal Reserve Act to bring the Federal Reserve into existence or did the Federal Reserve write the Congress Act to bring the Congress into <laughs> existence? I mean, mm-hmm. that's kind of where I would go with that right off the bat. But um, so, yeah, I mean, the Federal Reserve exists because a law was written to make it exist. <laughs> and so a law could be written to make it not exist. So, um, and, and the Federal Reserve doesn't have that ability. <laughs> um, World War II, most definitely the Federal Reserve was taking orders from the Treasury. The, the treasury wanted the fed to make sure to keep interest rates low on the national debt while the, while the, you know, the national debt was exploding due to the war effort. And there was a, a, after, after world war two for about five years or so, there was, there was a big um, debate between the treasury and the fed 
a lot of back and forth about uh, who was in charge, basically. And tre- Treasury was basically in charge, but the Fed wanted to be able to, particularly in the late, in, in the after World War II, to raise interest rates because inflation was 15 to 20% for a couple of years there after the war. And the, there's something called the, 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 the Fed Treasury Accord in, um, that happened in 1951, where they kind of agreed to have their own um, domains. And the thing about that is that that wasn't a law that was written. That was just the Fed and the Treasury. You could write a law reversing all of that. And in fact, the um, uh, Dodd-Frank, after the Great Recession, did put more constraints on the Fed. The Fed absolutely cannot do all the stuff now that it did uh, in 2008, 2009 without going to Congress. And that's why you saw in the CARES Act that $454 billion that um, people like Nathan and such were talking about as an accounting gimmick, which it absolutely was, but it was, that was the way the that's what the Fed has to do if, it, if it's going to run all these different type of lending programs like it was doing doing during COVID. It, it, prior to prior to Dodd-Frank, it, it could just do those things. It could declare emergency conditions and, and just do those things under the law. And so, of course, right. members change the law. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty obvious who's in charge. All so. right. All right, fair enough. So, and, at least to me, I don't know. <laughs> you know what, I mean, whatever freedom they have is the Congress chooses them to have it yeah, through their legislation. Exactly. Right, okay. Yeah, they 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 have any authority they have at the pleasure of Congress and the president. Right. Okay. Um, all right. I'm going to uh, include a, a one that I didn't put in here, but but just sure. a brief answer. Just a brief answer of all of the things that we're about to talk about. All of these details. All of your knowledge, really. Where did it come from? Like, do you analyze? Mm. Bank, uh, what do you call it? Accounting. I'm losing the terminology, mm-hmm. but do you do you look operations. online at their data operations? Do you do you interview these people? Do you like what, or, or is it just logically it's got to be this way based on what happens? Mm-hmm. Like how, where does this information okay. come from? So, I mean, you're you're talking about a paper I wrote 15 years ago for the most part. So, but I mean, but I mean in general, you're just your general knowledge about oh, central bank well, operations and so on. Oh, okay, just keeping it. I mean, yeah. First off, there's Accounting, which I'm largely self-taught on that. Um, I mean, I know enough to to be dangerous. I've taught I taught finance for a long for 15 years. I, I taught stock valuation and things like that. So I know my way around financial statements and, and SEC filings and things like that. Um, but I'm not an accountant per se. I, I mean, I, I I'm sure I would not pass the CPA exam if I had to take it right now. So. So yeah, there's the accounting, you know, I guess it, it started with the literature that you see from MMT in the nineties, uh, Warren Mosler's soft currency economics. And then he also had a paper of full employment and price stability, Randy's book, uh, Stephanie's paper, particularly the one on can taxes, bonds, finance, government spending, you know, a few things Bill Mitchell was writing, uh, Matt Forstadter and, and and Warren did that paper, um, the horizontal and vertical money paper. So that was all kind of the background. I'd also been getting into endogenous money long before that. Uh, Basel Moore, Hyman Minsky, Randy Ray's pre-MMT literature. So, you know, it, it took a while to put it all together, but that's what that was. And then I would say there's a, a methodology that I learned in my in my PhD program, um, my advisor wasn't a, a monetary economist or you know monetary policy or any of that stuff. He was more of a institutionalist doing general systems theory and things like that. And so I took his framework and applied it to all the stuff MMT was doing at the time, and and still do. And it, it just had a bit different framework for how do you know that you know something. And so for me, I needed to go into the laws and the regulations and all the, and the accounting and the speeches. And, and all those kinds of things to get the primary sources, to get as close to a primary source as I possibly could so that I knew that was how something worked. And, and I, still, I still tend to do that, but it's, it's kind of automatic now. Okay. 
Fair enough. Um, all right. So your paper written in 2008, Modern Central Bank Operations, the General Principles. Um, you told me a brief backstory about how mm -hmm. the paper came to be. Can you tell that story? Sure. Um, uh, so 2007, I was contacted by uh, Louis-Philippe Rochon, who is, uh, uh, I guess you would say he's, he's with the Canadian Horizontalists. Um, Mark Lavoie, Mario Secareccia, those folks. I don't know how many people will know those names, but um, I would say they're the group. They're, they're the group that if, if you wanted to name another group of economists that was, say, closest to MMT in understanding banks and uh, central bank and government and national debt, they would probably be that. There are some disagreements. I think a lot of it's semantics and most of us are friendly with each other. So it's not a, um, I've always had good relations with, with all of them. So anyway, he was doing a, he was doing a book for Basel Moore on the, uh, sorry, a book with Basel Moore editing book with Basel Moore on the 1980s, 1990s structuralists versus horizontalist debates in post Keynesian economics. So over the course of, I don't know, the next six months or so, I essentially wrote the paper. Uh, I'm, I mean, I look back on it now and the paper seems to me to be this attempt at blending detail with big picture narrative at the same time. That's kind of, I kind of had reached that point where I'd done a number of papers on details. And I, I think this paper was one that I wanted to step back and have the details in there, but, but give, you know, sort of, if all you remember are these 10 statements, then, you know, you're still ahead of the game kind of thing. Uh, so yeah, so I wrote it and, you know, long, long story short, long story, less long, I guess. <laughs> uh, Basel Moore had a number of health issues. The book really didn't get published. Uh, sadly, Basel Moore passed away a few years back. In 2016, 2017, Louis-Philippe uh, found, I think it was Sergio Rossi um, to co-edit. And so he did get, I don't know how many of the papers are the original ones that they were going to have for back then, but my paper had been online and had been cited, you know, probably 50 times by then already. And so I hadn't sent it to a journal and I had just saved it for Louis-Philippe. And once he had a book, we put it in there and I said, well, it's already been cited 50 times. Let's not change it. So what you have in the book that came out in 2017 is what I wrote in 2000, you know, late 2007, early 2008. So you, you see there are no, even though it's 2017 paper, there are no citations after early 2008. So. Huh. Hmm. Okay. Well, I'm going to ask this now. Um, you know, it's 2008. So it's, you know, mm -hmm. several years ago at this point is, are there any major changes that you would do if you wrote this again? Um, I mean, the, the only, th the, I think it's held up rather well. The, the only thing that changed is not really a change. It fits fairly well with the paper anyway, is, uh, most, well, not mo necessarily most, but a lot of central makes, particularly the larger ones or the richer countries run what we call a floor system where they oversupply the system with reserves and allow the interest rate then to basically be at the interest on reserves because it's well beyond the quantity of reserves out there is well beyond any downward sloping portion of a demand for them. So, uh, so in that sense that, that I would probably have emphasized that more if, if I'd known that, although I had done a paper a few years earlier on that very topic, um, not because I was going to advocate for it, but because I thought it was a logical thing to understand for understanding how central bank operations work. So, so I do, it, it is covered in the paper a bit. I can't remember which principle it is. So as you go through it, I'll point it out, I suppose. So I suppose I would have emphasized that more. And then, and then some of the other things about liquidity effect and such, um, as you and I were kind of emailing back and forth about those really aren't issues that come up anymore, but they were really, really big issues in the academic literature up until about 2008. 
So that might be it. I would just say I, I edited a book a year later um, and I put in more of an institutionalist bent for my uh, dissertation advisor, kind of a feshrift, I guess you might say, where I did a paper that was kind of a take on this paper, but I had another year of having seen what happened. So I kind of wrote it early 2009 and I did add a few additional principles to it. Um, I can't remember what they are, but I'll send it to you if you're interested. Okay, great. Um, all right. So, so the first thing that you mentioned in your paper is, you know, basically referring to the topic of the book that it was going to be in, or I guess ended up being in, which is horizontalist versus structuralist debate. Mm -hmm. And as I understand it, just basically they agree with that banks create deposits and that, that at, after that point you need reserves, the, the debate is on how and why and where those reserves come from and why you need them and so on. Can you, can you summarize mm -hmm. that debate uh, that you were addressing? And also, can you bring in the Charlist view to that? Sure. Um, I would say the Charlist view or the way that we saw things is, is much more close, much closer to the horizontalist view. Um, now, it's interesting. Okay, so let me step back for a second. Uh, so the horizontalist basically argued that um, the so I, I don't know if you if you're familiar with the way undergraduate macroeconomics used to be taught, maybe still is taught. I don't know. Um, but there used to be this thing called a money supply, money demand graph, and it had a money supply curve and it was vertical. And it basically was it would it was basically saying central bank sets the money supply wherever it wants to. And, you know, does it through, say, the money multiplier kind of framework. What the horizontalists were saying is, no, the money supply curve is horizontal. That the central bank can only set an interest rate. And the banks then are going to meet the demand for, um, if I stay in that framework, I'd say demand for money, but really horizontalists are talking about a demand for credit framework because they understand the distinction between money and credit and that the money supply and money demand graph does, is, is modeling something that doesn't exist mm -hmm. in the real world. So they would say there's a demand for credit. The bank set an interest rate based on what the, what the central bank sets and you know customers come in and ask for a loan and if they're credit worthy, they get a loan and the banks don't have any... Um, operational limitation on how much lending they could do there. You can, you can limit them in other ways, but you can't limit them operationally. And that includes with reserve requirements. So that would be the horizontalist view. Um, interestingly, Randy Ray would get at that time would get lopped in with the structuralists and uh, the structuralists were arguing that the money supply curve should be upward sloping, not vertical or horizontal, but somewhere in between there. And so they were arguing there's not the limitations that you see in the mainstream where the money supply can be directly targeted, but there's more limitations than the horizontalists. And they viewed the horizontalists as having an extreme position because it kind of made it sound like banks can just do whatever they want, create all the money they want to, et cetera, et cetera. Randy gets lopped in with them because Randy was arguing for an upward sloping money supply curve, but in a very, very different way than all of the other structuralists. He was arguing for an upward money, uh, money supply curve or, or supply of credit curve is more accurate because as banks expand their balance sheets and, and lend more and more, they start to need, uh, they start to, you know, bump up against some regulatory issues of, of, uh, capital requirements and things like that. And, and that they themselves will then start to raise interest rates that they're charging customers and such. And the thing about that is, um, he wasn't really disagreeing with the horizontalists on that point. It was a point of how to, how do you make it look in a graph? The horizontalists would just say, Oh, okay. As you get more and more lending, and you, you bump up against those limits and you have to raise the rate, then just shift your horizontal money supply curve up, whereas Randy would have done it with upward sloping. So, so in my opinion, at least, the two, Randy, Randy's view was, was uh, very similar to the horizontalists on those 
specific points. There are some differences, particularly on Minsky and such uh, among them. But the structuralists, in my opinion, don't have a very good understanding of central bank operations, banks, and such. Um, and so you see in the first principle, there's a discussion there, and I'm talking about a uh, person, Bob Pollan, in there, Poland Pollan, at UMass. And he's one of, he was one of the leading structuralists. And you can see in that first principle that I, I don't agree with him at all. But that is the position you see there in, in principle one is, is sort of a uh, standard structuralist position that was juxtaposed against the horizontalists. Okay. Uh, actually, that's the first thing that came to mind was when you said, you know, at the beginning of undergraduate uh, macro, they'll they'll teach them money and supply curve, mm-hmm. and the opening of Stephen of Steve Keen's debunking economics. That's what he talks about. Uh, I'm not exactly yeah. sure if it's exactly that, but he talks mm-hmm. about how the supply demand curve is right. just like doesn't exist, or the shapes can be all right. over the place and so on. Right. Yeah. Steve would be closer to the horizontalist as well. There's there's another school of thought, the 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 French uh, circuitists. And they are also very similar to the horizontalists. And and Steve, when he was first starting, well, I don't know if he's first starting, but when he was he was uh, you know doing his blog and 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 getting his books out and everything ten years ago and, and getting a lot of attention, he he would talk about himself as a as a circuitist, which mm-hmm. is so uh, not a different view really on central banking and banks than 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 we have in MMT. Um, all right. So on to the principles. Um, so sure. I'm going to summarize each one of these as best as I can, and sure. then you'll correct me and elaborate as necessary. So Sure. Okay. So here we go. All right. So principle one, reserves only serve two purposes, settling payments and meeting reserve requirements. Um, and obviously settling payments applies to the real economy. Meeting reserve requirements only applies to you know the banks themselves. Um, mm-hmm. Regarding the latter reserve requirements, there could be an arbitrary requirement, for example, that a bank has to hold a certain amount of reserves, maybe 10% of the total amount that it has in deposits. That could be immediately, that could be with a lag. In the absence of reserve requirements, the amount of deposits held by a bank is only very distantly related to the amount of reserves that banks need to make settlements. This is because a newly created deposit for a newly created loan or created from government spending first of all, may not be spent right away. It might not be spent in its entirety. Some of it may be spent at the same bank with a company that banks at the same bank. If it is spent at another bank, then that's only one of lots of transactions that take place between those two banks. So the net transactions between those two banks may actually be small or even in the opposite direction of that particular transaction. So as a very simple example, if I owe you 1,000 and you owe me 1,050, then the net mm-hmm. transaction to settle that whole thing is just you give me 50 bucks. Right. So the bank may already have sufficient reserves or can borrow them from another bank. So they might not ever need to go to the Fed unless there's, you know, a lot of things come together. So the existence or creation of new deposits only very indirectly is related to the need for more reserves. So I'll just All right, so that's that's number 1. So Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the core point there was asking why they would need them in the first place and starting from there rather than assuming that they need them. Because if, if you say, why would they need them in the first place, then you start to go through those things that you were just going through. Um, you know, and, the, and there's all sorts of things such as when there are reserve requirements, they're virtually never on a one-day basis. Right. It's almost always you have a week to meet them. You have two weeks to meet them. You have a month to meet them. And it's lagged, meaning the reserve requirements that you have today relate to the amount of deposits you had some point in the past. So that's that enables banks to average out over that period of time the reserves that they're holding, meaning they don't have to meet that requirement on any given day, right? They just need to hold it on average over that period. So anyway, there's a lot more, there's a lot more flexibility in there, even if there are reserve requirements. Okay. You said it's always lagged. 
is there it's yeah um i don't know if it's all if it was always lagged there are shorter the the shortest lag i've seen is is a week or maybe a bit less but um let's see there were definitely proposals by monetarists in particular to to not have a lag thankfully the fed never did that because i think that would um, just create a ton of volatility in the in their interbank markets because a bank basically wouldn't even know what its reserve requirement was on a given day. So mm-hmm. that would that would create a lot of uncertainty. But is there? I mean, I you know I, I have so much to learn with this. But but the the one of the first things that came to mind, I guess, from my imagination, was that there is a penalty for having an overdraft at the end of the day. Is that considered an immediate or is that just a different kind of category? That relates to the payment system. So that relates to, to number to number two. So, okay. um, yeah, I did try and split those up, even though you're right. There's there's definitely overlap here. So OK. All right. So before we get to two, just a, a minor question, which is banks require reserves in order to settle in order when money leaves their borders, whether it's to government or to another bank. That's that's the only reason that they would need to use reserves. My question is what other institutions or entities or whatever does reserves come into play? What are the other entities outside of the bank that reserves are needed for aside from government and other banks? Um, It's mostly the government sponsored enterprises, uh, the federal home loan banks um, and, and Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, those sorts of folks that have, reserve accounts as well. But by and large, you're talking about banks. Okay. Have, so nothing uh, foreign, everything foreign goes through the central foreign? bank. Oh, so, so that's a good question. Like um, even companies overseas, like if they want to buy something from a company. Overseas, no, oh, you have to be a bank to have an account at the fed. Now, if you did something like, you know, they're talking about central bank, digital currency and such, there are versions of that where say you and I might have an account at the fed, you know, the fed's not really in favor of that one, but uh, Rowan Gray has a fantastic paper on on that, actually, by the way. But the foreign central banks do have accounts at the Fed, but the, the balances are not in circulation when the foreign central banks have them. They don't go into circulation until the foreign central banks do something with them meaning put them into circulation into the banking system. So for instance, if the Bank of Japan has reserves in its account at the Fed, um, it might be using those to help its own banks clear international dollar payments, right? So what it, what it could do is it would, it would lend some of those to a, um, a private Japanese bank and the private Japanese bank then would either have an affiliate in the U.S. that would have a reserve account, or it would have a it would have a an account at some large U.S. private bank, and that bank would get the reserves. If that makes sense. Okay. 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 Um, all right. So principle two. Move on to principle two. Mm-hmm. All right. So here we go. Sure. As the only institution capable of creating and deleting reserves, the central bank has quote a fundamental legal obligation to promote the smooth functioning of the national payment system. As you say in the paper, quote, a nation's payment system is at the core of the infrastructure of the modern business world, end quote. According to the Federal Reserve's Board of Governors in 1990, quote, a reliable payment system is crucial to the economic growth and stability of the nation. The smooth functioning of markets for virtually every good and service is dependent upon the smooth functioning of banking in the financial markets, which in turn is dependent upon the integrity of the nation's payment system. Uh, the amount of transactions settled each day by the central bank is in the U.S. is enormous. In, in 2005, it was around $2 trillion. Today, I believe I've heard you say at least a couple years ago, a few years ago, that it was up to around $5 trillion. So a sixth yeah. of the annual GDP of the United States is processed each day by the central bank. And, and that's only a portion because some of the banks, some of the transactions are actually settled internally. Just the banks have these side agreements and internal yeah. systems. Okay. So the central yeah. bank is 
it, it, it goes beyond that too because um, you've got like the stock markets and the derivative markets and the foreign exchange markets and the bond markets. And those tend to have clearing arrangements and then they settle the netted positions with reserves. Hmm. So if you look at the, so I think your 5 trillion is pretty close. I think, I think um, it's about 3 trillion with the re, with just sending a, res, a payment in reserves. And then there's another amount on top of that settling uh, treasury markets um, mm. where it's delivery versus or it's delivery of the security and, and one way in payment the other way. Mm. Um, okay. But it was growing exponentially up until oh, I can't, sometime in the 2010s and then it flattened out, but it got up to three, maybe even four trillion, but I don't know that it's increased more than four. Four trillion, and then you lop on top of it the the, the treasury market okay. um, settlement. So, okay, all right. So continuing, the central mm-hmm. bank is the only institution that can create reserves, and so if we are to have a functioning society, it will provide the reserves needed by banks because it's the only thing. Reserves are the only thing that can settle those transactions. If a bank abuses those privileges, like they keep committing crimes and asks you know for more reserves because they're you know doing bad stuff, then make that bank can be shut down. So an analogy, as I see it, is that parents are the only ones who are capable of providing their children with food. But ultimately, it's provided based on the needs of the children. Parents will provide enough food in order for their children to remain healthy and not die. And so the parents don't go to jail. It also <laughs> implies a power struggle because the children can whine about being hungry when really they're not. It's just a form Mm -hmm. of manipulation. Mm -hmm. And so unlike the banks and the central bank, you know, kids haven't bought off their parents and, you know, and a (laughs) kid can't shut down their child if they misbehave, you know, they, they, you can't kill a child, but that's, I think a pretty good analogy of, of, you know, that, that the central bank is the only one that can do it, but they have to do it based Mm -hmm. on the needs of, Right, you know, there's subjects, whatever. So. I think I think it's actually maybe even a better analogy than than you know because one of the things that didn't get put in here that I would have put in um, is a concept that uh, Perry Merling started talking about in 2011, which is the the notion of elasticity and discipline, meaning the payment system, the, the central bank is providing to the payment system. Because you have you have to keep the integrity of that payment system, so there's a certain amount of elasticity, but it also exercises a certain amount of tries to impose a certain amount of discipline, because it doesn't just want to allow the banks to do anything they want to do and and, and end up with any amount of debt sitting on the Fed's balance sheet, you know, any amount of overdraft at the Fed, and so forth. So. You know, with kids, elasticity and discipline as well, even though we don't use those terms. But, mm. but yeah, the, I think the analogy works. Okay. All right. Good. Mm-hmm. Um, Let me just say the, the principle two for me is actually almost the most important one. And I, and I remember back when I was writing it, wondering if I should put it one or two. And I thought, well, since everybody that understands, everybody that talks about central banking and banks and money, Talks about reserve requirements first. I, I, I said I need to get that one out of the way. But um, so the payment system then essentially comes up in everything after this. And I, and I really do think, and I think it's clearer even now because even the U.S. doesn't have reserve requirements anymore. The Fed got rid of them last year. Um, that economists would have a much better understanding. I shouldn't say economists in general because I don't know if the mainstream would have figured it out anyway. But um, the heterodox economists that looked at this stuff would have had a much better understanding of it if they had started with the payment system instead of reserve requirements. Yes, right. Yeah, I remember that. Mm-hmm. All right, so principle th- on the principle three, but before we talk about that, you mentioned to me how the money multiplier and, the f- and fractional reserve banking are actually just two sides of the same thing. Can you can – you- yeah, that. because the fractional reserve comes from reserve requirements. That that's where that term comes from. Banks banks can only lend out so much of their reserves, right? It's kind of what 
is is being said in fraction reserve lending. The multiplier is a idealized model where you take that fractional reserve lending process to its infinite, uh, I don't know what you call it, infinite loop conclusion, <laughs> right? In the sense where you get $100 in reserves and you lend out, you know, you lend, you lend it out and then it comes back to you in 100 in deposits. Well, now you have to hold 10%. So you lend out 90 and you end up now with 90 in deposits. And so you lend out 90% of that. That's 81, I think. And then, you know, and you keep going and each time you're 10% less, right? And if you follow it to infinity, then you've basically turned that 100 into 1,000. And that's the money multiplier, but it's all coming from the reserve requirements. You're just following it to its logical, I don't know, infinite series conclusion, maybe we'd say. So that, that's where I'm saying they're, they're, they're basically the same thing, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, and, you know, I hadn't thought of this till basically you were saying this is that, so you start off with 10, you can lend out 90. I believe that's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. What are the well, chances that yeah. start with a hundred and you yeah. can lend out 90 other? Yes. What are the chances that someone right now wants to borrow exactly 90? Like the chances of that seem low yeah. and then, you know, that right. keeps on getting smaller and smaller. So it's right. Right. Yeah. Okay. It makes no sense. Yeah. It, it <laughs> makes no sense. Um, and I should actually, there, there's, um, uh, if anybody's being really picky here, I should fix some of what I said. There is a, there is a very technical distinction between the two in the sense that the multiplier is not only reserve requirements. Um, it could be some of your customers, like to hold currency rather than deposits. Well, that's a withdrawal. So now that's fewer reserves that you have. In the, and as a bank, you might want to hold some excess reserves just permanently as a buffer. So that reduces the multiplier. So in more, uh, economists would say more sophisticated versions of the multiplier, it's still fractional reserve banking, but it's not completely driven by reserve requirements in the money multiplier framework in those cases. Anyway, they're still all wrong. So, but those are, those are the technical, those are some theoretical differences, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's all, and it was all based on the concept that you can lend out reserves, which is wrong just to begin with. So, um, all right. So principle three, the money multiplier, not only doesn't limit bank lending, it's impossible for the central bank to directly target reserve levels or the monetary base at all. It's only possible to directly target the price of that money, which is the interest rate. The monetary aggregate can only be indirectly targeted, which is inherently unreliable. Even if the central bank could magically manage the levels of reserves, because banks are not reserve constrained, it would not have a direct effect on bank lending.
Today I talk with Scott Fallweiler on his 2008 paper, Modern Central Bank Operations, The General Principles. Today's part one of a three-part conversation. Today we discuss some generic but related topics and then principles one and two. Next time in part two, we cover principles three to six, and then in part three, principles seven to 10. My full and detailed question and summary list can be found in the show notes. Also, be sure to check out the list of audio chapters to find precisely where each principle and otherwise can be found. Today's principles one and two. Principle one is that reserves can only be used for two purposes, settling payments between banks and meeting reserve requirements. There's actually a third purpose, which is that it's the only thing that can ultimately settle tax obligations to the state. Knowing these are its only possible uses, when you hear, for example, that more reserves somehow increase a bank's liquidity and that this in turn encourages banks to lend more to their customers, which then in turn increases economic activity in general, you know they're wrong. The same is true with the reverse, that less reserves somehow discourages lending and reduces economic activity. Principle two says that because the central bank is the only entity capable of creating and deleting reserves, it has a fundamental legal obligation to promote the smooth functioning of the national payment system. Without a functioning payment system, society would, without exaggeration, break down. If a bank can't settle its payments with another bank, then everyone expecting a payment won't receive it, and everyone expecting payment from them also won't receive it, and on and on. Trillions of dollars go through the Federal Reserve System every day. In the United States, more goes through this system each week than an entire year's worth of GDP. Not to mention, the U.S. payment system is central to most of the payments for the entire world, and so the U.S. payment system breaking down would have global implications. As a brief side note, the latter point is leveraged by the United States to surveil and manipulate most nations around the globe. One example is how when Iraq threatened to eject all U.S. troops, the U.S. responded by threatening to forbid Iraq from using its payment system, thereby potentially disconnecting it from the entire world. This is the big story that lurks behind the so-called petrodollar. There's a fascinating video on this by the Wall Street Journal, which you'll find linked in the show notes. And now on to my conversation with Scott Fulweiler. Enjoy. Enjoy.